The original idea behind this H2O series was this. Jim and I decided that we were just going to trade off sermons, basically talking about whatever we've always wanted to talk about, each of us getting on our individual soapboxes, and we thought that was a brilliant idea. And um, as we shared that idea with others, people got this really nervous look in their eye. And so um, for some reason, they thought that might be a little dangerous. And so what we did was we decided to give it a little bit more direction. We gave it this H2O water kind of beach theme and it all kind of happened because Jim was texting with me while I was on vacation a couple months back in Florida and we came up with this idea and I thought well that works great for me because I got to be honest with you I I love the mountains but I really 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 love the ocean I mean I love every part of it. I love the, the smell, the taste of the salt water in the air, the breeze off the ocean. I love the, the sand. I love getting to go barefoot everywhere. I love everything about it. And while I was in Florida this past year, I couldn't help but reflect because we were on a beach that Allie and I had stayed on eight years prior. It was a place called Sanibel Island, and, and we're, we're standing there, and I'm starting to reflect on the fact that eight years before this, I'd stood on this same beach, and my wife was pregnant with our oldest daughter, Landry, at the time, and I'm standing there thinking about what all has happened in the past eight years, and I'm reflecting on, you know, three more kids, eight years of ministry, eight years of life, moving across the country to Colorado, all that water under the bridge, so to speak. But I also couldn't help but remember a couple significant moments that happened to me while I was on on that beach eight years ago. See, back when, before I had kids, what I would do on vacation is I would get up before sunrise and go out to the beach to watch the sunrise happen. Now I have kids and I sleep whenever I can, all right? But back then I used to do this. And so one day I remember going out to the beach before sunrise and I walk under this, this kind of canopy of palm trees onto the head of the beach under this tra- on this trail and I get out there and there's this huge, massive storm forming. There's this huge thunderhead and there's flashes of lightning from within the cloud and the waves in the wind are picking up and I don't necessarily recommend this but this is what I did because I love storms as well and because I love the ocean, those two things were coming together, I just walked out on the beach and just sat there and let this storm just kind of wash over me and roll over me and just experience the full force of that storm and I'm telling you, in that moment, there's a feeling that I always feel when I go to the beach that was accentuated even more as that storm rolled over me and it's this feeling I feel really really small in the presence of the huge vast ocean which honestly I was at like the kiddie pool of the ocean the Gulf of Mexico but in the presence of that combined with this huge storm I felt really really small Another moment happened on that same trip. It was a different morning and I I walked out before sunrise. It was pitch black and again, I don't necessarily recommend this, but what I decided to do was to go for a swim in the ocean while it was pitch black out. And I don't have any other word for what that experience is except for haunting, all right? It's just eerie and it's strange and so I'm out there in the water and I'm swimming and I can't see anything around me and as the sun starts to come up I kid you not the very first thing I can actually see is a fin come up out of the water and I said oh goodness you know or something like that and retreated back to the beach as fast as I could and then I realized as I watched the fin come up a few more times it was a dolphin but I'm telling you in that moment I couldn't help but think about how wild and how untamed the ocean really is. And again, I felt so small. And here's the thing. I feel small in the presence of the ocean, yet David, the ancient songwriter, says this in Psalm 33, seven. He, God, gathers the waters of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. 
Last week we talked about how sometimes we try to put God in a jar and say this is what God is like, but this week we're looking at this. God takes the water of the seas and puts them into jars. Think about that for a second. The vast and endless sea and God puts the ocean in jars. I'm so guilty of often skipping over scriptures like that, not really taking that in, but that's significant. That's how big, that's how strong, that's how powerful, majestic and mighty and awesome God is. He puts the sea, the ocean into jars. I love what a pastor named Francis Chan said recently when he said this, we worship a God who we cannot exaggerate. Pick whatever metaphor you want, H2O, water, the ocean, anything, and all you're doing is scratching the surface of how big and how amazing God really is. Now, there's a natural conclusion and there's a natural fallout to that, to the realization of how big God is. And to be honest with you, it's a conclusion that most of us are probably not very comfortable with, especially in our country, especially in our current culture. And that conclusion is this, in the presence of a very, very big God, we feel very, very, very small. Big God, little me. And oh boy, we don't like that. We're not comfortable with that at all because our generation, probably less than any generation that's ever preceded us because we live in the generation of self-esteem, don't we? Which basically means a a person's overall appraisal of their own self-worth based upon their abilities. And I think one of the reasons we struggle to see God for who he really is is a lot of us think too much of ourselves. And we've been taught in our country that self-esteem is the most important thing to believe that you're a winner. But here's the thing, if we're going to raise children that believe that they're all winners, there's a natural problem with that. Everybody can't be winners. By definition, someone has to lose the game if there's going to be a winner, which means that, we, which means that we're at a dilemma. What do we do? If we're going to put self-esteem on this pedestal and serve at the mercy of self-esteem and it's going to become ultimate, then what do we have to do? We have to eliminate losing altogether, don't we? For example, let me give you a couple examples, all right? My son, Eli, is five years old. He, he played a bunch of sports this year, two of which kind of stand out, um, t-ball and wrestling, because they couldn't have been more opposites, all right? But with t-ball, it was really, really interesting because they didn't keep score, okay? Yeah, there's Eli. Um, he hates picture day, just so you know. It, it takes away time from actually playing the game and he doesn't understand that. So he's just like, all right, take my picture. Can I play now? So anyway, in T-ball, they didn't keep score, which I could kind of get my brain around because it's five and six-year-olds. It's an instructional league. That's what they called it, the instructional league. I'm like, okay, that, all right, I'll deal with that. But what I found absolutely unbearable was the fact that there were no outs. That's right, there were no outs a kid couldn't get thrown out at first base he got to stay on first base and so the inning always had like kids just rounding the bases repeatedly repeatedly because the bases were always loaded and why is there no outs because it might hurt their feelings if they get thrown out right but there's a thousand I'll just give you two problems with that there's some unintended outcomes one is this no one wins if everybody wins what about the kid's self-esteem who made the nice play to throw the kid out at first base What about him? Number two, none of the kids actually learn how to play baseball, right? It's called an instructional league because in baseball slash reality, there are winners and there are losers and people actually get thrown out at first base. So what are we doing when we coddle our kids this way? We're delaying the inevitable because here's the truth. In life slash reality, people fail, people lose, people get thrown out. So there's all these unintended outcomes. Now, Eli also wrestled, which was really, really cool. Um, Yeah, there he is. (laughs) 
They did, he's a little bigger, he was four then. He's a little bigger than most four-year-olds and they didn't have a singlet for, for him that fit real well. So he was a perpetual wedgie. So it was totally different though in wrestling because wrestling is clear. There's a winner and there's a loser. You get pinned or you pin somebody. So he wins on points or you lose on points. That's the, the way it goes. And, and when I signed Eli up for wrestling, I took him to his first wrestling duel. The worst thing that could have happened, happened. He won. He won his first four matches and he thought that's how it's always gonna be. He thought this is, this is a good feeling, I dig this, I like this. And then what happened at match number five? He lost and he didn't know what to do with that. This is a newfound feeling and so he just freaked out. He vented, he had all this frustration that built up because he didn't know how to handle losing. And every time that I took him to a wrestling duel when he lost, we dealt with it. He freaked out, he got really, really angry. And I gotta be honest with you, as a parent, it's really tough to watch your son lose, but I believe this and I believe this firmly. My son's ability to learn how to lose is way more important than learning how to win. Way more important. But we live, oh you can, yeah okay. You guys are much more friendly than last night. They're all like, you're so mean, you know? <laughs> we live in an everybody gets a trophy, we're all winners culture though. And no one wants to feel less than or feel small. And just in case you think I'm being a jerk, which I'm sure is a brand new sensation to you, please understand. <laughs> Please understand, all right? All the current research that's being done by non-Christians and Christians alike is saying the same thing. I read this great article in the Atlantic Journal the other day. The headline on the Atlantic Journal was this, how the cult of self-esteem is ruining our kids. And this lady's article was called, How to Land Your Kid in Therapy. And I could, I could, there's lots of fascinating things in it, but I could sum it up this way. It goes like this. When we don't allow our kids to experience failure as children, they will inevitably experience it later in life and then conclude that something must be terribly wrong. But there isn't. Failure is a part of life. It's as much a part of life as winning is. In the article, she talked about how a principal had a parent come to her demanding that teachers stop using red ink because it makes their kids feel bad when they see all the red ink on their paper. Well, here's a solution, get the right answer. Then you won't feel so bad, right? <laughs> you guys are great, man. Somebody sent me a, a YouTube thing last night and I hadn't seen this as an interview on HBO Sports. I was unaware of it. I wish I was still unaware of it because it made me so angry, but there's apparently a whole movement in our, in our country now in physical education to get rid of any games in gym class that are actually competitive. And so they're removing dodgeball and they're actually, they're actually making kids jump rope without rope, which is called jumping, by the way, <laughs> right? All in the name of self-esteem. We live in this self-esteem obsessed culture and we, when we get confronted by a really big, massive, untamable God, we don't like that because we don't like to feel small. We would prefer to believe the self-help gurus that tell us we can be anything we wanna be, we can do anything we set our mind to, which is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. You can't do anything you set your mind to. If you've lived more than 10 minutes, you know this. You know, let me give you an example. You know what I set my mind to when I was a kid? I mean, I set my mind to this. I believed it for a long time. I believed and set my mind to being the best basketball player the planet Earth had ever seen. I was gonna be better than Michael Jordan. And I worked really, really hard at it for a while. I would get up early, go to school before school started, take a whole bunch of jump shots, shoot a whole bunch of free throws. I even scored like 24 points in my first freshman game on the freshman team. And you know what happened? I turned out to be a five foot 10 white guy. <laughs> did, 
do you know how many five foot 10 white guys are in the NBA? I'm a big basketball fan, I follow the NBA. I couldn't think of any, so I looked it up online. None, none, there's not any. But we like to live under the illusion that if you just believe in yourself, you can scale any mountain, you can swim any ocean, but what happens, folks, when the power of positive thinking doesn't pan out? What happens when all those illusions come crashing down on us? And what happens when we fail to climb the mountain, when we drown in the ocean? And what happens when we come to terms with the living God? And what happens when we lose and when we fail? What happens when our identity comes crumbling down around us because all of our worth and value was tied into our performance? See, we, we struggle with difficulty in any situation that makes us unhappy because we don't think we should ever feel difficulty or be unhappy. So the pursuit of happiness becomes ultimate, and so we create a God who would serve at the altar of our pursuit of happiness, a God who would never allow us to go through any discomfort or pain or failure, and we've even got a verse to back it up from the Bible. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, Right? And we translate that to mean that I can do everything that I want to do through him who strengthens me. I can do everything that makes me happy through him who gives me strength. So that verse is the most often quoted verse in the locker room of the winning team at the Super Bowl and by the guy who gets the job or lands the girl and by the person who beats cancer. And I got to be honest with you, it's probably the most misrepresented verse in the whole Bible. And there's lots of misrepresented verses in the Bible. We don't pay attention to who wrote the verse, when they wrote it, why they wrote it, or what they meant when they wrote it. See, it was written by a guy named Paul who wrote most of the New Testament. And enlisting his life experience, he said things like this. He was beaten by rods. He was stoned, not in the way that you're thinking, with rocks, whipped, arrested, chased by wild animals, shipwrecked, not once, but three times. Who gets shipwrecked three times? If it happens to me twice, I am not getting on a boat ever again, right? <laughs> And by the way, he wrote the verse from prison. He wrote that verse from prison. Let that sink in. He didn't write the verse while sitting on top of a mountain with the sun shining on his face or by the beach with his feet in the sand and a fruity drink with an umbrella in it. He wrote it from an ancient prison in chains and shackles. And we never pay attention to Philippians 4.12 which comes right before Philippians 4.13. And it says this, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I've, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. He had learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. He wasn't relying on his performance or his circumstances for his worth. His worth didn't come from inside of himself. It was given to him from somewhere else. So just one time, just one time, I swear I want this to happen. Because at the end of the Super Bowl, they always go to the winning locker room and then eventually they make their way to the losing team's locker room and they interview a couple of players and a couple of coaches and just one time I want it to go down like this. Somebody asks the question, how are you gonna deal with this loss this off season? And just one time I want somebody to say, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I can lose through Christ who gives me strength. Because that would be consistent with what Paul meant. That would be consistent with what the Bible actually teaches. I can lose through Christ who gives me strength. I can face cancer through Christ who gives me strength. I can face infertility through Christ who gives me strength. But what we want to do is create a God whose ultimate aim is to make us happy that would serve at the altar of our self-esteem. And there's just one small problem with that. That's not God. That God doesn't exist. 
David, he said this, he said there should be a different outcome at being confronted with the God who gathers the water of the sea into jars. Look at this, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. This concept of fearing God is from cover to cover in the Bible. You cannot escape it. And it's troubling to some of us. And it's because of our idea of what the word fear means. But fear literally means in the Bible to respect, to revere, and to esteem. So to be clear, David says we shouldn't take the path of self-esteem, but we should take the path of God-esteem, to esteem God, to value God above anything and everything else, including ourselves. See, to fear God doesn't mean to believe that God has evil intentions towards you. God doesn't have evil intentions towards anyone. It means to respect him for who he is, to respect his character, his power, his awesomeness, his might, to understand and to behave like when you're dealing with God, you're dealing with someone altogether different than you and bigger than you. You hear fishermen talk about having a healthy respect for the sea. That starts to scratch the surface of what it means to fear God. In recovery ministry, we talk about the first step, which I I still believe the first step of all the steps is the most difficult one, and I always sum it up this way. The first step is to realize I'm not God. To realize I'm not God. I am not all-powerful. I'm not all-knowing. I'm not in control. I can't seem to manage my own life, much less make the ocean stay where it is. I'm not God equals step one. And that's really hard for us because we don't like that. We like to be in control. We like to take life by the horns. We like the, the old poem, Invictus. Maybe you've heard it before. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. Matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And we like that poem way more than we like David's poem from Psalm 40, which says this. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and he heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit and out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders you have done. The things you plan for us, no one can recount to you. Were I to speak and tell of them, they would be too many to declare. Do you see the difference? One poem says, I can do it. I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. The other says, I can't do it. You're the master of my fate. You're the captain of my soul. They are exact opposites. So kind of halfway, halftime in this sermon, let's kind of sum up this positive, encouraging sermon brought to you by Scott Nichol. (laughs) God's really, really big. And we are really, really small. Let me, let me kind of dive in deeper to how small we are because I don't think we really grasp it oftentimes. Jesus' half-brother James writes this in the New Testament. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this city or that city. We'll spend a year there, we'll carry on business, and we'll make money. You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes 
Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag, and all such boasting is evil. Now, let me tell you what these verses are not saying. These verses are not saying don't make plans for tomorrow. Live haphazardly. Don't worry about tomorrow. No, 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 that's not what these verses are saying. This verse is all about perspective, and that perspective is this. God is really, really big. We are really, really small, and life is really, really short. What's he compare it to? A mist. I was in Phoenix a few weeks ago and we took the kids to a water park and because it's 5,000 degrees in Phoenix, uh, they, they have these misters that they put above the stairs up to each water slide, which is a great idea. The problem is we spent most of the time waiting in line, watching the mist come out of these, out of these hoses evaporate in the air about three feet off our head. It's like, ah, why God, you know? James is saying life is like that. It's here and then it's gone. It's that short. It's a mist. Say it another way. If the stream of human history and all that God has done and is doing could be compared to Niagara Falls, my life would be like one drop of mist rising off that stream. Here and then gone. So here's another fun truth today. Life is short. We're all going to die. Go in peace. <laughs> right? <laughs> Thanks, Scott. Thanks a lot for saying I'm so insignificant. I didn't say you're insignificant. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the path most of us take to trying to be significant is the wrong path. If we try to take the path to significance of self-esteem, I have to do good and be good, and then people will like me, and I'll feel good, then I'll have value, and then I'll have worth. We're always going to come, come up empty, so if my life, if in my life I, I get self-esteem and value because I can throw a ball really, really well, I'll do that really, really well. And if I get self-esteem and people like me because I'm really good in business, I'll do that at all costs and do that. If being a nice guy makes me feel good and boosts my self-esteem and other people take notice, I'll be the nicest guy that you've ever seen. But what happens when I can't throw a ball anymore? And what happens when the business goes bankrupt? And what happens when I'm a jerk? All of a sudden... My value feels like it goes down a few notches. My identity, my worth all seems depleted because it was all tied into my performance. One of my favorite athletes of all time is Muhammad Ali. I grew up, my dad used to tell me just story after story of Muhammad Ali, and he bought me all these old VHS videotapes with, with all of his fights. I've seen them all from Sonny Liston, the thrill in Manila to the rumble in the jungle. He was amazing. He had power and speed, which made him an unbelievable boxer, and his personality was even bigger. Some would say he was larger than life. And the most famous phrase that came out of his mouth was what? I am the greatest. And for a while... He was the greatest boxer we'd ever seen. You've seen him lately. You've seen him lately. Life is a mist. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. And if your value comes from being good at doing things, whatever that may be, you're going to end up feeling like you have absolutely no value at all. So where do we get our value? Where do we get our worth? Two simple truths. Back to that songwriter named David. Psalm 100 verse 3 says this. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Do you see those two simple truths just leaping out of that scripture? He is God and we are his. 
He is God and we are his. He is mighty creator, awesome. And he's not nervous. He's not wringing his hands. He literally has the whole world in his hands. He gathers the water of the seas and the jars and we are his. We belong to him. He created us. He made us. We are his people. Do you know what metaphor the Bible employs most often to to describe us, to describe people? It's really humbling. Sheep. Sheep. Do you you know how dumb sheep are? (laughs) Seriously, like I've spent some time in Northern Ireland with shepherds and they'll tell you, yeah, you're the dumbest animal ever. They'll, They'll tell you that. I mean, sheep are not fierce, they're not powerful, they're not intimidating. No one picks a sheep to be their mascot, except for CSU, I guess. Hey, listen, all right, I've been taking abuse all weekend, but you gotta be honest about something, all right? When you go to the CU-CSU game, which I've done, and you watch Ralphie the Buffalo run across the field, thundering, it takes like 20 cowboys to make sure he doesn't kill somebody. I mean, it's an awe-inspiring moment. And over in the corner, you got, meh, sheep. All right, so... All day long, you can tell me, you know, he's a ram, okay? He's a sheep, okay? He's a sheep. And sheep are really high, please don't email me. My email box is full, all right? Sheep are really high maintenance animals. They need constant care. They need constant guidance. They need constant attention and correction. If they don't get all those things, you know what happens to a sheep? They die or they get eaten. You have to literally lead a sheep to water or he won't drink. You have to lead a sheep to food or he won't eat. Does that sound like anybody else you know? We're constantly compared to sheep all throughout the Bible, but you know what else the Bible emphasizes about sheep? The value of sheep. Jesus said it this way, tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him one day but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered this man welcomes sinners to eat with them then Jesus told this parable suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it and when he finds it he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says rejoice with me I have found my lost sheep I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who don't need to repent. And David says, we are the sheep of his pasture. Our value comes from one simple fact. We are his. Our value, our worth comes from the fact that God, big, powerful, almighty creator of heaven and earth, the one who scoops out the seas, values me a mist, a vapor, Here today, gone tomorrow, Scott Nickel, and you too. And don't take my word for it. This is what Jesus said about you and me. Matthew 10. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet none of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are of more worth than many sparrows. Great big God knows you inside and out everything about you, everything you've ever done, and he gives you worth. He endows you with value. So what should the outcome of that be? 
It's really, really interesting because on this day that Jesus was talking about sparrows and the hairs of your head and how much you're valued and all that kind of stuff, he was talking to his 12 disciples as he was sending them out on a mission, in his words, to reach the lost sheep of Israel, people of Israel who had wandered away from God or been driven away by really bad religious leaders. And these disciples are standing in front of Jesus on that day, nervous as all get out because this could go badly for them. This could ruffle some feathers. They could get in trouble. Translation, they might fail. They might lose. They might not perform well. And Jesus says, don't be paralyzed by fear of failure or fear of what might happen to you because you have value regardless of how well you carry out this mission. You have value regardless of how well you do. So do it well. We aren't responsible for the outcomes, folks. We're responsible to be faithful. See, I think later on, James, Jesus' little brother, was just piggybacking off all these things he had heard Jesus say because in that James passage I read to you earlier, there's another verse at the end, James 4, 17, that to me never seemed to connect well with verses three through 16. And I was thinking about it a lot, a lot this week. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go this city or that city, spend a year there and carry on business and make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag, and all such boasting is evil. Now, here's the verse I never understood how it fit. Anyone then who knows the good that he ought to do and doesn't do it sins. I always walked away from that going, man, James, you're just all over the place. You're like ADD. You're switching categories. I don't see how that connects. Here's how it connects. God knows that you and I have a tendency to find our worth and our value in doing good. And in being good, so that we will feel good about ourselves and so that others will like us. God knows that we have a tendency to tie our value and our ability to our ability to do things well. God knows that if that's true, we're going to have a huge fear of failure. And fear of failure often leads to paralysis. So we, in our fear to fail, decide not to do anything. And James says, when you make that decision to not do anything, anyone who knows the good that he ought to do and doesn't do it sins. We tend to think of sin in the sense of the act of commission, things we do, sins of commission. But James is, James is giving us another category here for sin, sins of omission. Being paralyzed and not doing good is the same as doing bad. James is saying the same thing Jesus said. He's saying your value is not tied to your performance, whether you win or you lose, and you might lose. There are losing situations in your, in your life, but your worth doesn't have to change. So go ahead, take a risk, play the game, reach out, do good, tie your value to your creator and then jump in the ocean. I love that quote Jim read last week from C.S. Lewis. Remember it? This is my endlessly recurrent temptation to go down to that sea and there neither dive nor swim nor float, but only dabble and splash. When it comes to the ocean, I've never understood people who just literally walk on the shore just putting their toes in, but will never just jump in the vast and endless sea. Worse yet, the people who don't even go to the beach, but just sit at the very tame swimming pool by the hotel. I don't get that, but I do that in my own life, and I've done it many times. I know the good that I should do, but I don't do it because I'm afraid. I'm afraid of failure. I'm afraid to risk. I'm afraid to mess up. But God's inviting me and inviting you to jump in with the knowledge that our value is not determined by our performance. It's determined by the God who created us. He is God and we are his. So if that's true, what's the good thing that we need to do today? 
today. If all that's true, is there a person you need to forgive? An addiction you need to start to fight? A truth you need to tell? A person you need to call? A story you need to share? A parent you need to apologize to? A struggle you need to admit? And there's a million yeah buts going on right now in everybody's brain. Yeah but, Scott, you don't understand. Yeah but. And here's what I've learned. I've got a lot of those too. But all of my yeah buts get trumped by the love of the living God. Because Jesus could have easily said, yeah, but they don't deserve it. And he would have been absolutely right. And he could have said, yeah, but I'm better than this. I don't deserve to be treated this way. And he would have been absolutely right. But he never played that card. Instead, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know what that's called? Love. And the love of God should at least do two things in our life, probably millions of things in our life, but it should at least do these two things. The love of God should free us up to do good things. That's what we've been talking about. Number two, the love of God should make us stand in awe of him that he would love people like us. All summer long, I've been teaching at different camps and conferences, high school students and college kids. And for the past two years, every camp, every conference I go to, there's this song that's almost always sung. And when they sing this song, I kid you not, they sing this song way more loudly than they sing any other worship song, like hundreds of decibels louder. I mean, just with passion and energy, they sing this song. And this song goes like this. Oh, how he loves us. Oh, how he loves us. Over and over and over again. Oh, how he loves us. And I think it's a biblical song. I think it's a good song. I just have a fear with that song. And so at several different camps and conferences, I've been making lots of people mad at me because what I'll do is I'll get up at the end of that song and I'll, I'll ask this question. Do you sing that song so loudly because it makes you think of how great you are or because it makes you think of how great God is? And then there's crickets. Because I'm afraid because we're in the midst of such a self-esteem culture and we think so much of ourselves sometimes that we sing a song like that and go, aren't I great? God loves me when we should be thinking, isn't it great? Isn't God great that he would love someone like me? The fact that the Bible teaches that while we were still sinners, God sacrificed his own son for us, that the God who gathers the water of the seas into jars is mindful of you and me and loves you and me and treasures you and me and invites people like you and me to bring the ocean of his love to a lost and broken world should make us stand in awe of who he is as if we were standing on the edge of the ocean with a storm rolling over us. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and God, some of us, if we're honest, we'd love to pretend that you're not there because if you are there, we're frightened because you're big, you're mighty, but in our worst moments, we can't shake this feeling that you're there when we're haunted sometimes by this sense that you are much bigger than us and we are very, very small. But God, your word says, deep calls the deep and the roar of your waterfalls, your waves and breakers have swept over us. And so would you do what you do and would you make your character and make who you are known to us? Could we see a glimpse of who you are today, of just how big and mighty you are and then stand in awe of you and then to stand in awe of the fact that someone is big and mighty and great and glorious and powerful as you would love sinners like us 
so much that you would send your own son to die for us? Would you give us a glimpse of your love that is as vast as the ocean? In Jesus' name, amen.